It's Tuesday, March 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. California's high-speed rail is an ambitious infrastructure project that is behind schedule, billions of dollars over budget, and struggling to maintain support as the political energy behind it is murky at best. Plenty of work is still being done right now, but it doesn't completely match what was originally sold. Jill Cowan, California reporter at the New York Times, joins us for a look at where the biggest infrastructure project of them all is currently standing. Next, the war in Ukraine is threatening the economic recovery here at home. Supply chains haven't fully recovered from the pandemic, and inflation is at record highs. Sanctions on Russia are crippling their economy, but also hurting us when it comes to energy, cars, and food. Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios, joins us for more. Finally, the CDC wants to monitor everyone's poop, but states are not all on board. During the pandemic, state and local health officials were able to detect COVID in their communities before residents develop symptoms, and the CDC wants to expand those programs to stay ahead of variants and other viruses too. States would need widespread buy-in for this to be successful, but many logistical challenges remain. Catherine Foley, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for the plan to monitor the nation's sewage. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The authorities celebrated the completion of the South Avenue Great Separation, the first completed high-speed rail structure along the 65-mile stretch from Fresno, Kings, and Tulare counties. Joining us now is Jill Cowan, California reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about this interesting story you wrote up about California's high-speed rail. It's something that's been going on since 2008. That's when voters in California voted on a $10 million bond measure to kind of get this whole thing rolling. Well, we're in 2022 now. (laughs) Nothing has really been done. The price tag for this thing has ballooned to about $105 billion. And right now we're not really getting what we promised. I I do live in California, just for frame of reference. So the original plan for this high-speed rail was to go from Los Angeles to San Francisco, connect these two major cities. And, you know, it's just not happening like that. The political wills are all over the place. And one of the officials you spoke to with all of this says the only way to get this done is to just trudge forward whatever the political weather is, which doesn't really sound very good or promising for this project. So, Jill, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with this? So I think it's kind of a, a an almost sort of a, a Rorschach test. You can look at the project through a number of different lenses. And it's interesting that, that you took away sort of that the prospects are not looking good. I mean, it's one thing that experts have told me is that it's also very difficult and seldom done that projects like this are killed outright. So it is going to continue to move forward. Whether and at what point we will have the full vision of the project done is still uncertain. And as as the story says, it, it is mostly a matter of political will. And there are pros and cons or positives and negatives for the project at the federal and state level right now. Obviously, President Biden has a much better relationship and is you know, has talked a lot about transforming the nation's infrastructure. So this project is sort of a test of of how that will play out and to what extent President Biden and Governor Newsom will be able to move forward on those goals. Two things that stood out in your article that ring totally true, right? California residents have long since lost track of what is being built and where. I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, 
being here, it's tough to follow along with what is happening with this project, right? All you just keep hearing is there's delays and the cost of it is, keeps increasing. And then the other thing is that this is also kind of something else. We look at the country and all the great things that we can do. And right now, it doesn't seem like we're able to complete these transformative projects, you know, that are going to carry us into the future. And that's kind of what this project was hailed as. Right. And and at the same time, uh, there is a lot that's under construction in the Central Valley. And, and I think it's such an interesting, it's just a really interesting lesson. And we're not going to have a clear answer soon because it takes a long time to build these projects. But it is very much under construction. You know, I visited these construction sites. You can see in the in the fantastic photographs from uh, our photographers, Ryan Young and, and Ryan Christopher Jones. There is very much a lot being built. So it's really interesting in what it says both about California and about the U.S. and these sort of big transformative projects. It's hard to get a handle. And I, and I experienced this while just trying to write about it at this <laughs> point. It's hard to get a handle on what's happening everywhere just because it is so huge. It's such a huge project. And, and there are people who say that people who live in, in the big population centers in California need to see that evidence of this happening. And obviously, Governor Newsom has taken sort of the other tack, which is they need to see trains running in somewhere. Yeah. They need to be able to see, uh, you know, that this, this can work and then, you know, kind of get the momentum going for the rest of it. So the big sell was L.A. to San Francisco. Right now, what's being worked on is a path from Bakersfield to Merced. So you mentioned, uh, you know, you went there, you got to see the crews really working on it. So there's a yep. lot of work being done. And to the point that, uh, you know, Governor Newsom and others have made, is you got to get some part of it running so that you can kind of, you know, find the money to do the other stuff. You got to work on the right. bookends, right? You got to work on the bookends to make sure that's up and running. You got to work in the middle and then you just kind of find the money for the rest of it. And, <laughs> and that's part of the frustration, right? Is that this thing right. just keeps ballooning in that front. The cost does keep rising, and the longer it takes, the more money it costs. That is true. And as I as I had in the in the article, and and as I've said, and, and a lot of people have told me, um, and if you've been following this project for a while, you know there have been a lot of well documented, and the High Speed Rail Authority in California has acknowledged that they have made mistakes in the way that they've gone about it. So certainly nobody is saying that that California has been perfect in the way that this has happened. But at the same time, that price tag is not unexpected. And it is sort of just an interesting look at how we talk about infrastructure in the United States compared to a lot of other countries where it's sort of accepted that we are going to have to spend a lot of money to update these systems that were built in the middle of last century. You know, for comparison's sake, an expert that I spoke to, Yona Freemark, noted that since 1956, state and local governments have spent more than $10 trillion on surface transportation. So, you know, in that context, he said the $105 billion, as sort of eye-popping as that number is, doesn't sound so crazy, but, you know, it is, it is a lot of money to try and find and try to pull together. And the state legislative analyst's office basically said the state needs to commit to this, otherwise it's going to be really tough to find enough money to build beyond the Central Valley. Jill Cowan, California reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We've seen the price of gas go up over a dollar just since he put his troops on the border, on the border of Ukraine. They went up a dollar and five cents. 
Joining us now is Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Hi, happy to be here. Well, obviously, the war going on in Ukraine right now is on the top of minds of a lot of people for, you know, all the horrific stuff that's going on right there. Here at home, it's kind of a different story. We're figuring out the administration is trying to figure out how to help, how to best help without getting directly involved. But as a byproduct of all of this, it's hurting the U.S. economy in a number of different ways. Oil and gas prices obviously are going up. That's kind of one of the immediate things that we're feeling. But it's, it really has the potential to affect us in a lot of different ways. So energy, cars, food, supply chain issues. Uh, there really is some far-ranging effects throughout this. So, Emily, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? So, basically, the Russian economy is... It's a big one. Um, we've never really ripped an economy of its size out of the financial fabric of the world before. And while the sanctions we've levied against Russia are really inflicting the most damage on Russia and the Russian people, um, we're feeling blowback all over the world. Definitely, first of all, in energy, and I'm sure your listeners are already feeling or seeing higher prices at the pump, or if they're in the Northeast like me, their oil bill is absolutely bonkers. But there are second order consequences. Also, there are these commodity price hikes on these obscure metals that no one's ever been thinking about before outside of their industries, like in palladium and nickel, um, which are metals produced in Russia. And without the Russian metals in the global economy, prices are spiking. And that could mean higher prices for, say, the car batteries that go in electric vehicles or in catalytic converters in regular yeah. gas-powered cars. And really yeah. quick on, on that front, so the automobile thing, you know, we've talked a lot about that on the podcast, where one of the big inflationary causes is this backup of uh, production of cars. You know, the semi-chip mm -hmm. conductors was a huge part of it. But these things that you just mentioned, the palladium, the nickel, these kind of, you know, if you take these out of the supply and everything, that could slow production down again or even more, you know, prolonging that. So that is a huge thing that could keep inflation going here in the United States. Yeah, they could keep inflation going. I mean, we're already, inflation has not really shown much signs of slowing down lately. So what's going on now between gas and oil prices, commodity shortages and price spikes in metals, that's all going to contribute to rising prices as well. Of course, it's an ongoing situation. So, you, you know, the markets are kind of all over the place right now. It's really kind of hard to predict, but yeah. supply chain disruption seems like a sure bet at this point. <laughs> We don't get a lot of stuff from Russia per se, the United States does, but we're in a global economy and you take one big thing out, it has ripple effects. A lot of this stuff impacts Europe a lot more immediately, but we feel a lot of the effects too. That's that's what we're talking about. So food, how, how does it affect us on that front? You're exactly right. Russia and Ukraine, they supply wheat to a lot of other countries in the world, not U.S. countries. There have cheaper prices for wheat. So the countries that are buying it for them are in sort of more precarious position to begin with. So for other countries, not the U.S., what's happening now could lead to shortages and literally starvation. In the U.S., we're already seeing rising food prices. And, you know, I wouldn't expect that to moderate given what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. At the same time, I wouldn't be worried about anything so severe in the realm of food. Supply chain issues you mentioned. So we are seeing ships back at some ports because of the war. Uh, I mean, this, this is on mm -hmm. the other side of the world, obviously, but that 
as we know throughout the pandemic, these supply chain issues have the ripple effects. Yeah, exactly. One slowdown in one part of the world sets off a chain, literally the supply chain that could have issues for us too. And then um, this wasn't in my piece today, but I think we're factories in Shenzhen right now in China just announced that city is locking down for a week and a lot of stuff gets made there kind of piling on to the problems we're already seeing outside of Russia, Ukraine. So it's just sort of adding more trouble to the system. You do mention there are some optimistic things going on with the economy, at least with employment and some of the markets. And and people still do have some money to spend left over from the uh, pandemic stimulus things. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that it feels like such a, a hard time right now. But if you go and look at the jobs numbers, unemployment is extremely low. Everyone is hiring. There doesn't seem to be enough workers to go around. Household balance sheets are still pretty healthy. There are reasons to be optimistic. Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, we hopefully don't have this virus spreading to a ton of people before they all get sick. And that's worked really well. So CDC wants this to happen on a national level and getting states to individually buy in and and volunteer for this process has been really hard. Joining us now is Catherine Foley, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, I was looking through news and the headline for this story caught me right away. The CDC wants to monitor poop but not all the states are on board. Now, this has to do uh, with COVID and the pandemic. It also has to do with catching other viruses, other variants that might come out in the future. And uh, something that was happening throughout the pandemic is that we were monitoring wastewater to see if, you know, the virus is washing up in any of that. You can kind of tell, you know, if there's going to be a coming surge in the community based off of what we were seeing in there. So they gained a little bit of popularity during the pandemic. The CDC wanted to kind of expand this to a lot of states, but there's really only a handful of states that are participating in a program like this. Even those states aren't fully sending in all of their information. And then there's states that are just flat out saying no. So, Catherine, tell us a little bit more about this. You got the science exactly right. I mean, our poop does kind of tell everything about us. Everything that is like goes through our GI tract will, you know, eventually leave it. So you can pick up little bits and pieces of not just SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, but I mean, eventually you could pick up maybe viruses like the flu, gastrointestinal viruses, or even things like opioid use to see where you might be seeing an uptick in drug use or anything like that. So that's not what the CDC is talking about right now. Right now, they're just trying to get states to start surveying all of their wastewater treatment plants to see if they can find evidence of any kind of new variant of COVID-19 or anything in their wastewater sheds. And the great thing about that is that, like, unlike people who might take at-home tests when they're feeling ill or maybe people who have asymptomatic COVID cases is, you know, everything is right there in the poop. So it's like one giant pooled sample that really can't hide anything, which is great. The problem is, you know, our sewage systems all over the country, A, they don't capture everybody. They capture about 80% of the country. Some people still have septic lines. And B, they're built really differently depending on where they are. You know, sewage was initially built as sanitation services because the whole idea was that, you know, we need to keep our drinking water away from our waste to stop getting sick. So 
there's no good uniform way to say definitively how we want to sample these wastewater treatment plants. And as a result, you have a lot of these different treatment plants across the country that have gotten very used to taking care of sanitation in the way that makes sense for their community. So it's very difficult for CDC to come in and say, okay, this is exactly the standard. This is how you're going to take the measurements. This is how often you're going to do it. Because right now, CDC doesn't do anything with wastewater treatment plants. That's actually all, they're all regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. So CDC, a lot of localities have been doing this wastewater monitoring over the pandemic, as you've said, and it's worked on a really great it's worked in a really great way at the local level, you know, especially at universities or correctional facilities. Researchers and public health officials have been able to predict or see, okay, we're seeing an increase in the amount of SARS-CoV-2 virus in this wastewater. We should isolate folks. We should test folks and make sure that they're isolating. So, you know, we hopefully don't have this virus spreading to a ton of people before they all get sick. And that's worked really well. So, CDC wants this to happen on a national level and getting states to individually buy in and and volunteer for this process has been really hard. A lot of this does come down to money. Creating a new system, getting the people to manage and manage it effectively is kind of the longer term problem. Like I said earlier, CDC doesn't really have any authority over wastewater systems. So all they're doing is asking states to participate and they can offer them carrots to do so. So one thing the agency did was partner up with a third party contract lab and say, okay, we'll offer you totally free testing. All you have to do is just let this lab come in, take samples from your wastewater unit twice a week or every few days or every other week, and they'll turn around the lab results. You don't have to do anything. But because wastewater systems are already so regulated, they're a little bit, you know, understandably anxious about getting any kind of external involvement in. And sometimes these facilities are so far away from like FedEx shipping plants because that's what you have to do. You have to ship the poop samples to a big lab somewhere to analyze them. (laughs) Sometimes they're so far away, it's really difficult to do it in that turnaround time. The other thing that CDC has been doing is there are these grants that states can apply for. And CDC has some of these grants earmarked specifically for developing wastewater monitoring systems. But you don't have to apply for a grant. You can, but states might say, you know what, we actually, this isn't something that would serve our population. So we're not going to do that. We're actually going to apply for different grants and focus on different public health measures. Yeah. For the states that said flat out, no, there's North Dakota and Wyoming, maybe a few more. One of them, they had concerns about wastewater data being federally reported. So kind of like a privacy concern, I guess you could say. But but really, what is their uh, thing for just opting out completely? There could be some genuine privacy concerns, right? I mean, scientists can know a lot about people, especially if you're in a rural area and you're surveying from a wastewater treatment plant that doesn't serve a lot of households, right? But there could also be other factors at play, you know, in public health. If you know about a problem, you have to do something about it. So a lot of people that my colleague Megan Messerly and I spoke with for this story We're saying that in some areas, you know, maybe public health officials don't want to have a wastewater monitoring system up and running because then they would have to acknowledge that perhaps they are not as free of COVID as they thought they were. And that that might be tricky because you can't I mean, it's like getting a test for anything. You can't get a test and say, never mind, I'm not going to do anything about it. So that could be what's at play there, although it's hard to the answers we typically got were we're not sure if this would serve our communities at this time. Catherine Foley, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.